0: Today is January 18th, 2010, and my guest is Michael Spence, a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, the chair of the Commission on Growth and Development, and the 2001 winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics. Mike, welcome to Econ Talk. I'm delighted to be with you. I want to start with your work on the Commission of Growth and Development. Uh, it started in the commission started in 2006. Give us a little background to start with on Uh, what its mission was, and um, how it's unfolded?
1: Well, I think the mission had really two parts. One was a feeling on the part of the people who eventually became part of the commission that the importance of growth as an enabler of the achievement of a number of objectives, poverty reduction, and a lot of the MDGs, had been sort of lost. Uh, And uh, people were focusing on trying to solve important problems that people care about in the developing world, but but many of them are pretty difficult to deal with uh, without the tailwind of growth behind you. So that was one of the, it was was never meant to be uh, negative with respect to uh, the very important achievements that had been made in the areas of education, health, and other things. Um, So I think of it as complementary to that. The other thing is that, you know, since the Washington Consensus, which came together in the, around 1990, late 80s, 90s, there's been a lot of experience accumulated in the developing world. India had accelerated, uh, China had, had been uh, accelerated earlier and been growing very rapidly, and growth had turned up in a number of parts of the world uh, after a long hiatus in Africa, in the parts of Latin America. And we thought that experience and some good complementary academic work um, ought to be reviewed, and we ought to try to assess what we'd learned and what we still didn't know about growth and
0: development. Talk briefly uh, for the listeners who don't know about the Washington Consensus uh, what the outlines of that were.
1: Washington Consensus was put together by, principally by, a man named John Williamson, but he had colleagues. And it was an attempt to try to understand uh, what the key sort of cri- necessary criteria had, which had to be met in order for um, a developing country to grow and develop. And they put together a list uh, of things that, even to this day, I seem really quite sensible. Uh, and uh, that list has been expanded over time. Um the problem with the Washington Consensus wasn't the idea, it was the way it was interpreted. It was interpreted as a set of, of, of um, a sort of policy actions, if you like, uh, by government uh, or a strategy, if you want to put it all together, that, that, that if you did that, then you were pretty much assured you'd grow. And that turned out not to be true. So the, mis- the, the, the misuse of, of the Washington Consensus was as a kind of formula, a kind of one-size-fits-all uh, view of the world that that, was, that, what, that people took to be uh, the kind of necessary and sufficient conditions for growth in scientific language. Now I think most of us think of them as a pretty close approximation to necessary conditions, but the part that's missing is the, is the sufficient conditions part.
0: And these were, and then,
1: and then uh, let me just add one thing. Sure. The, the, then the problem really was in the application. This got turned into a prescription uh, for a, a very limited role for government uh, in many parts of the world, including Latin America. Um, a kind of, you know, the market will take care of most of it. And if the government gets beyond a certain minimal size, it will start making mistakes and making things worse rather than better. And that, I think, was not what was intended by the, the framers of the Washington Consensus, and it certainly isn't isn't the way people think about it now. It, it, I think the president, President Obama, in his um, in his inauguration speech, put it bad the issue isn't whether the government's big or small, but whether it's effective in doing the things that require collective action.
0: So, so the Washington Consensus was an emphasis on markets, rule of law, private property. But also a restraint yeah. on government spending to some extent, partly because so many would-be uh, developing countries didn't spend their money very wisely. I think, and I think you're right; it got interpreted to mean little or no government rather than wiser government.
1: Yeah, wiser, better government. I think that's a, pretty, a very good summary, actually.
0: Of course, um, wiser governments yeah. pretty tricky. <laughs> not so, yeah. We're not so we're not so good at that. very tricky. Yeah, yeah. No,
1: I mean, if I, if I turn to what I learned uh, from working with these, um, the, the other commissioners, they, were, they are mostly very experienced political and policy leaders from the developing world, with a few exceptions. Uh, Bob Rubin was a member, and he's obviously a former secretary of the Treasury. Bob Solo, founder of Modern Growth Theory, and a Nobel laureate, was the, my fellow academic on the commission. But I went into this thinking this was fairly complex sort of dynamic economics, if you like, and economic policy, <clears throat> and I came out of it thinking that uh, that this is an awful lot about government and governance and uh, getting things started and, and really wasn't best thought of as entirely economic. I
0: mean, one of the things that's interesting about the commission is, as you say, I think you and Solo were the only academic economists. There were 20 other commissioners, yes. 22 commissioners altogether – most of whom were from quote the real world
1: yeah and the real developing world which, uh, which and, can you know, which, former presidents and prime ministers and heads of central banks and so on
0: and i would have predicted in advance and be interested in your take would have predicted in advance that it would be hard for those folks to be um brutally honest it's hard for academics too but it seems particularly difficult for politicians was, was Did you yeah. find there was a lot of uh, political infighting in the commission itself?
1: No, I didn't, actually. You know, I think it's harder for, for these folks to be brutally honest when they're in more public fora. Uh, but the commission, we didn't try to hide from the public, but it, I mean, it clearly wasn't sort of like a meeting of the ASEAN finance ministers or something like that where you're speaking for your country. These people who are very smart and very experienced were speaking for themselves, and then the output, you know, was the commission's output. Uh, People can disagree with it. So I didn't find much of that at all. What I did find is that their experience and their own thinking didn't always lead them to agree on various matters, and there are some very controversial aspects of, of growth and development policy well we just decided at the start that when we didn 't agree we'd, we'd just say we didn 't agree <laughs> and that's a good uh, idea. and then try to explain why uh, because we thought the explanation might be actually sort of informative uh, so that 's how we handled that
0: so you produced a report about two years after the commission was started in two thousand and six in two thousand and eight a report came out uh, with a set of of analysis and recommendations, and it has a sentence in it I found rather um. Uh, startling, uh, and I think, it, it's a, I think it's the first, might be the very first sentence of the overview. It says, since 1950, 13 economies have grown at an average rate of 7% a year or more for 25 years or longer. So as, as you point out, uh, and is obvious uh, to anyone who knows the rule of 72, that means if you can grow at 7%, you double the size of your economy every decade. So if you can do that for 20 years, you quadruple your size in 20 years. Uh, 30 years, you eightfold increase. Uh, So what did you learn, and what did the commission come up with as the secret to at least uh, these economies that grew so dramatically?
1: Well, first of all, we... we, 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 (laughs) We learned really two things, Russ, um, and I, I should emphasize, you know, you don't want to overgeneralize from the, from the successes. You need to look at the failures and the kind of also-rands as well if you want to get a complete picture. And We understood that, but we, we really used this as a device, you know, for kind of trying to highlight some things. So what are the two things? So one is that the, um, the openness of the global economy, which increased steadily by policy, uh, wise policy, on the part of the United States and the European Union and the advanced countries after World War II um, was the enabling factor, uh, and and it has two parts. It, it has huge markets uh, for developing countries that can find a place in them, and it has a lot of knowledge that they can essentially import, and that in, that bringing knowledge, whether you call it t- it's technology, it's management capability, it. A whole lot of things that that are the underpinnings of a modern economy that that increases their productive potential much much faster than you can do this on a standalone basis, or for that matter, much faster than the advanced countries can do it. Even though we're pretty innovative as a group, um, and so that, that that that's the first thing. The global economy makes this possible, and it's overwhelmingly the dominant. Um, factor, more than aid, more than almost anything you can name. And then there's a whole lot of things that, um, that go on inside an economy, some of which are political and some of which are, are economic, that, that take advantage of that um, favorable external environment. And the things on the economic side, I mean, I think we picked off very high saving and investment levels are critical. Uh, including on the public sector side. So the government has to make certain kinds of investments in things like infrastructure and education without which this this really can't happen. So those are crucial, and high is really high. I mean, you know, 25% or above of the gross domestic product or think of it as gross national income. Not quite the same thing, but they're close. Um, And, you know, the public sector... You know, is under pressure in a poor country. And so investing their 5, 7, 8% is a non trivial commitment of resources to the future rather than the present. And for that, you have to have a supportive population, regardless of the form of governance. And, uh, and that takes leadership. I mean, people will make those sacrifices, I think if they think there's really a good chance their children and grandchildren are going to be better off than they are. There's lots of evidence that people do that, but they, but they have to believe. Uh, they really have to believe two things. They have to believe it's possible, and they have to believe that they're kind of all in it together. There's an inclusive element of, of this kind of thing that's absolutely uh, essential.
0: I want to talk about those two aspects uh of, of public activity and that, and then I want to come back to globalization because I think it's so interesting. Um let's start with those two areas of government activity. There are many poor countries that where you know, when we think of infrastructure in the United States, we think about bridges, tunnels. Um in poorer countries it, it's much more basic than that is my impression. There are things Major, major basic problems like you can't get the crop to to the to the port, or you can't bring stuff from the port to the to the people because the roads and the you can't even use a real truck in some in some places. So that part of infrastructure I understand. The educational part, though, I find harder to understand. Certainly, we know many many cases where countries have poured money into education with no return because yeah. they didn't get education; they just spent money on it. Uh, It's a little ironic for the father of signaling theory, which uh, (laughs) downplays the role of education as increasing in human capital and emphasizes its role as a signal to talk about its importance Mm -hmm. at least in developing countries. So, So talk about both of those factors, the infrastructure and the education part.
1: Well, you know these these inputs are, are more like requirements so that if you have one but not the other, you tend to get it slows you down. I mean to, to use the language that you'd use talking about growth. Um, but the, it's not surprising that the um, that the economic development tends to start on the coasts or around rivers, and this has been historically true because the infrastructure in some sense is already there or part of it. Um, that's certainly true in the China case, but there are many examples from. Um, Paul, Paul Collier, with you, you've had a, a, a long chat or two, points out that, that there's a lot of landlocked states in Africa, so the infrastructure is a particular problem there, and it's infrastructure that has to be constructed on a regional basis in order to solve that problem. So, and it's a major challenge. Infrastructure is expensive, and in a poor country, um... You know, it tends to get pushed aside by more pressing, immediate, urgent problems, you know, uh, disasters, famine, the health of the population. I mean, these aren't trivial things, uh, but the crowding out effect has a dramatic effect on long-term growth. And the the, the, the successful cases are, are, in some sense, the most surprising. I mean, most of these countries, Japan's an exception, were relative, I mean, not relatively, very poor. When they started growing, China, you know, had had per capita income sort of at the low end, you know, of the spectrum. Korea was very poor. Singapore was a very poor fishing village. Um, So, a a small subset of these countries managed to sort of corral the resources uh, to make the investments and and to start the growth process. But uh, um, it's it's a it's a big sacrifice and a tough choice, and I think in order to make it, um, you required really inspired leadership in most cases to get it done. Um, even if you don't like the political system, uh, sometimes the, the leadership is important. On the education side, uh, you know the academic studies of education using data, I meaning cross section studies. Um, turn up a huge variety of results ranging from important to unimportant. And I, I think the reason is that the specification of the model is too hard. It's too complicated how this interacts with something else. But the, but the one thing that is true is that is what you just said, and I want to underline it, which is there is a tendency to measure your commitment to education by input, how much money you spend on it, how many kids are enrolled, but when you go and measure the output, which has been de- done now on a multi-country basis, you get surprising and disappointing results. Yeah. So you don't always get very good output in the sense of cognitive and non-cognitive skills development in young people for that investment. And that's a real problem. It, it's, I, it's, it's ubiquitous. It, it's, it's pretty much everywhere.
0: Yeah, well it's it's true in the United States even of course and one yeah. of the, one of the reasons it's true I, I feel and I, I get your take on it is uh we often give it away and in my experience uh people don't treat things they're given with the same care as things they earn and although I understand the argument for subsidized education I think the argument for free education is particularly uncompelling and it almost guarantees that people will will um, not Treated as valuably as they would if they had to work for it.
1: Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I, I actually agree with that, uh, and it's and and the and the data would. I mean, you know, data in the general sense would support you. There's a in many many countries there's a private family commitment to education, uh, monetary and other that's significant in the in the uh, in the places where it seems to be working pretty well. Um, there's lots of things that get in the way. I mean, in in India, in a number of states, you find that teachers are public employees. Nobody really monitors carefully what what job they're doing, and they're no shows. Yeah. Know, so uh, it, it sort of reminds you of the old political machines in a certain bo- in American cities. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> You've um, got kind of a patronage system, you know. In other cases, I mean young women, don't get to go to school because when the family's under pressure, they're the ones who are pulled out, and uh, and so it's actually, you know, it's a, it's a complex challenge uh, to sort of up the efficient quality of the educational process. But it, but it's, but it's, but it's kind of first order importance in many countries.
0: Let's go back to globalization, <clears throat> as you said in the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to just look at the winners. Um, you also want to look at the losers oh. and the also-rans. Are there any examples of countries that have cut themselves off from globalization, the global marketplace, and have been successful?
1: I think the answer to that is no. At least we weren't able to find any. You can uh, Let me qualify it slightly. You can uh, the, the, You can cut yourself off or partially cut yourself off and try to use the domestic economy's supply side in lieu of competition from the, from the global economy. And for a while there, lots of people thought that was a good idea. That turns to, out to run out of gas after a while. And so it may look like it's working for a decade or so, but it's not going to work for 25 years. Uh, and the reason is that you you pay an increasing price in terms of cost or efficiency by taking that route. And uh, there's there's examples of that even in the advanced countries. I grew up a lot in Canada. In Canada and Australia and New Zealand all had uh, very high tariffs and a kind of import substitution policy to develop their industrial sectors, (laughs) and they've all abandoned them in in, uh, various ways because the cost got too high. And you can even measure the cost. I mean, you look at the amount of protection you require in order to have an automobile industry in one of these countries on a standalone basis so that the outsiders can't compete. You end up with tariffs of the or effective rates of protection of 80% and whatnot. And eventually, it just is too expensive for the citizens of the country to support this strategy anymore.
0: What's fascinating about it is you lose the economies of scale that you could potentially have... And you also lose that competitive edge. And what, when you said you runs out of gas, I was thinking about I was thinking about the United States, where you yeah. know, the big three. You'd think well, in a lot of industries, three competitors is plenty. They work really hard to try yeah. to steal market share from each other and innovate. But in the United States, yeah. something happened in the auto industry in the fifties and sixties and even seventies, where they were evidently relatively cozy, and a little competition yeah. from the Japanese totally transformed that industry and forced uh, the, the big three to work a lot harder, and some of them couldn't do it, as we can see right now.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, there is a, you know, the, the one thing you in a developing country that is a sort of, I would call it a subtle aspect of, of, um, of policy is you want to have the objective of being open and fostering competition, but it is possible to do it too fast. Uh, you know, if you have relatively inefficient sectors uh, and then expose them to global competition too fast, you know, the the, the Schumpeterian job destruction as opposed to job creation can get out ahead, and then you've got problems, you know, of not only economic problems of sort of unemployed people and, and poor people, but you've also got political problems of support for the growth strategy. So you generally see countries that are succeeding going in the right direction, but they do it at sort of at a, uh, a, a measured pace is the way I would describe it. it but, but that doesn't gainsay say anything you just said. I, I have to say we didn't make it easy for the automobile country, companies, and uh, not to take responsibility only on the public policy side, but a lot of these companies operate globally and build cars for markets where the prices of uh, gasoline and oil are a lot higher. That's and, a good point.
0: And, uh, yeah, that's a great point.
1: Uh, of course, our, our companies could have done the same thing, too, but they, I think they got smitten by the size of the, mar- the domestic market in the United States. and.
0: And sort of caught. You no, know, it's it's a uh, it's a very um, interesting, you know, managerial cultural dynamic uh, that what they uh, what they were dealing with, and, and yeah, and the politics. I, I agree. Um, Absolutely. I, I I lost my train. You get,
1: of th- you get scale. You, you get scale economies. That you get. What, you know, going back to sort of Adam Smith, you get sort of. It, there's this mysterious concept to the public that economists use called comparative advantage. It just means what you can compete in, relatively, what you're relatively good at. And, you know, the, the countries that grow very fast are supplying the global demand, and they, and the global demand so big they can specialize in those things. So the, the advantage you get from the global market is a combination of scale economies and this, and this advantage from being able to specialize in what you're comparatively good at.
0: Yeah, I, no, I think the um, – we've talked a little bit about this before on this program, but I think seeing the potential for an enormously large pin factory that sells to a, a big portion of the world market uh, and thereby takes account of uh, – takes advantage of enormous specialization and the application of capital to each stage of the process is the road to um, credible productivity.
1: Yeah, no, it, it, it is the road to credible productivity. It's also a road to vulnerability. I mean, you know, when you do that, you're, you're dependent on the global economy. And if it does something bad or it gets into a, a muddle as it did in this crisis or some other things, so there's risks associated with it as well. And I think it's important to be honest about them.
0: No, that's true. If if If, if you're cut off from the global economy, you tend to have a – Lower variance, but uh, you don't get much. Uh, the meat's not very high. It's <laughs> a tough. Exactly it's a tough right. trade-off. Talk a little bit about yeah. um, uh, corruption, because it, yeah. it seems to me that one of the challenges uh, in all of these stories about the role for the public sector being the right size, being big enough to cover, say, infrastructure, yeah. uh, without uh, getting in trouble. Uh, what role does um, governance play in in success and failure?
1: Well, governance, broadly defined, plays an incredibly important role, and um, and wholesale corruption uh, is you know meaning grand theft, so to speak, uh, is devastating because there just aren't that many resources in poor, relatively poor countries. So uh, you know, if a good chunk of it is going off to banks in Switzerland or the Cayman Islands, it's a major problem. And, you know, I mean, again, just have talked with Paul uh, Collier and probably others, but in you know, in, natu- in natural resource wealthy economies, it's very easy to have the politics or the political economy turn to try to capture the natural resource wealth or the income from it and away from things that look more like, you know, long-term growth and the long-term interests of the broader population. So that, that's a major, major um, issue. And and when it's been done well, um, it usually takes generous and effective leadership, as in the case of Botswana. I mean, uh, the um, prime minister, or president of Botswana, uh, came from the tribe where the diamonds were found and went to the tribe. They had a, in Botswana, very well-developed collective decision-making uh, process at the regional or tribal level, and he said, look, I mean, we really got to make sure these are, belong to the country, and um, you can imagine, that was a fork in the road, I mean, a country that, you know, where a tribe sort of says the diamonds belong to the country is a country that's kind of off in the right direction, and the other road isn't very nice, it's kind of a pitched battle for the, uh,
0: for the incremental wealth. It is, it's and that, uh,
1: unfortunately it is not the standard story.
0: Yeah, and no, it's it's a fascinating counterexample to the standard story. It makes me think I, I never really thought about this before that you know natural resource wealthy countries have the fact that the resources that this this um, this potential cash flow is in a very uh, geographically limited place is what makes the competition to control that so fierce. And we have the advantage in the developed countries that our greatest resource is highly dispersed. It's in the brains yeah. of millions of people. Right. And the most you can extract from it is, you know, via the income tax, which we're pretty good at. But it's not like what people can do to oil and diamonds.
1: No, that's exactly right. And, you know, in the if you go back to the 1950s, uh, people in my profession, you know, when asked, you know, where in the developing world were things going to go pretty well? It said Africa, and when and they asked when asked where were they going to be a major problem? They said Asia, and it, so that was sort of dead wrong. And the reason is that we underestimated the importance that would attach to the human resources if properly developed. Yeah, and the difference between Asia and Africa was that. Many of those countries, all they had was people. So they sat down and tried to figure out what were they going to do with this asset or how were they going to make this asset more valuable both to the country and to itself. It turns out, you know, kind of sustained creation of wealth and um, and prosperity really in the end it could be materially augmented by natural resource wealth of a variety of kinds, but in, but in the long term, it really does depend on people, learning, institutions, and innovation.
0: So let's talk about uh, policy and how we might get more than 13 economies to grow at more than 7%. There's a long list in the denominator um, (laughs) uh, to join and do better. And I've become, partly from reading, partly probably from my biases, partly from interviewing folks like Paul Collier and William Easterly, i become extremely pessimistic. Uh, East, uh, Collier's not, but but I've become extremely pessimistic about the ability of outside influences uh, to do anything in the short run uh, for the poorest countries in the world. Uh, there's no evidence that we can help them. Uh, there's hope, but there's no evidence. Can you cheer me up a little bit? Can you give me some optimism or your take on on what we've learned from the last 50 years? Uh, Most of the things we've tried, aid in particular, have not worked particularly well. In fact, they appear to me to have made the problem worse. Other than opening our borders and trading with lots of people, is there anything specific that the so-called West or developed countries can do for the poorest nations in the world? Um, We
1: can do a lot in humanitarian terms. But, but I, don't, I think that you're basically right, um, that there isn't any evidence um, that we can do a lot if things are going badly internally. Um, and the reason for that is that even countries that, you know, are going badly where the people are genuinely unhappy still think it's their business. And in some deep sense, you know, given that we're organized as nation states, um, that's right, and so external influence, if you like, or interference is a kind of more provocative way of putting right. it, is not widely accepted, even in, you know, even for poor countries, so when it's a humanitarian disaster, you know, either man-made or by forces of nature, then I think the, the argument changes, but that's not growth and development, that's responding to something much more basic. Yeah, uh, it's
0: palliative. You
1: know, Bill Easterly and I apparently don't agree on much, but I, I actually agree on him, with him on that. I think where we probably part company is on how to think about the role of the state uh, in this process. You know, I think if government, as, a, as, a, as effective government and effective leadership is an important input, and so is the um, sort of private sector dynamics, you know, entrepreneurial spirit and so on. When those come together, then you get a pretty powerful combination. But uh, my impression is Bill thinks that the commission sort of overemphasized the, the state of the kind of planning entity.
0: Well, to hear your earlier remarks that it was in some sense uh – a reaction to an overreaction to the Washington Consensus. I think it's an interesting perspective. I think it seems to me the challenge is one we could call a selectivity bias. If you look at the successful states, their governments are fairly well run. Um, yeah. It's hard to understand. I don't think we know much about how to get from A to B, how to get the countries that are corrupt or badly run to become those better, le- better led or – or more effectively governed uh, countries.
1: No, we don't. And, and in some sense, when I was asked that question, I mean, I basically gave your answer in response to a question. When somebody said, you'd say, what are we going to do about that? I would say, who's we?
0: Yeah.
1: Let's... Um, so I, I think that part is essentially right. On the other hand, I mean, in order not to be too pessimistic, I mean, demonstration effects have enormously large impact. I mean, there's lots of examples of that. Um, You know, in the case of China, Deng Xiaoping went to Singapore and then New York, and it just opened his eyes with respect not only to what what was possible, but uh, but uh, but how you how you go about it, Uh, why the market was so important, and so on.
0: Russ, are you still there? Yeah, no, I'm just listen. I I think it's. Yeah. The Chinese experience and, um, is a fascinating one. It's... Yeah.
1: India has clearly, you know, I mean, you know, a country like India, you know, I think that's very going to be influenced by the developments in Europe or North America. But a big neighbor, you know, where the, where the argument is that, you know, they're kind of similar in size and population and so on, you know, has a big influence. Even if it's just Motivational. Um, these big countries, you know, especially China, are now uh, starting to have an impact on the developing world, both in knowledge transfer and in using their resources. Now, people worry about the kind of international political economy of that, and for good reason, but that's all starting to happen. And, to be fair, um, as a result of nation and identity building, adapting policies so that they're better, paying more attention to distributional issues. Growth really did pre-crisis, was in a period of rather broad expansion. So there's a reasonable, I think, basis to hope that we can return to that pattern in the post-crisis period, and that, that these 13, even if the standard's too high, that the pattern of growth uh, Will expand. I mean, Brazil grew very rapidly until about the mid seventies. More or less, stopped dead in its tracks for twenty five years, and and now is is growing and looking very promising.
0: You know, we haven't listed those thirteen countries. You don't have you don't have to reel them off the top of your head. But I did want to ask a cultural question, um, and it, to me, it's a, it's a fairly narrow one in line with your demonstration effect idea which is the ones that you've mentioned I think were Japan, Korea, Singapore, China they're all in Asia. Uh, India would be another there it's in I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, it's close to Asia. It's, it's uh, Asia. Yep. yeah. So I wonder how much of this is is a good kind of contagion where the success of your neighbors uh puts pressure on you or you learn from your neighbors. There's not a lot of success in Africa to be copied, or or Latin America, uh, or is there? Are there are the 13 countries? Are there any from Africa or Latin America that you remember?
1: Well, yeah, Brazil. It, it actually, you know, in the immediate post-war period, was one. Okay. Uh, and Botswana is one. Botswana still relatively poor, but yes, yeah, but they were very poor before. So Botswana is one. Oman is one. Uh, and but you 're right, the majority are are in Asia uh,
0: Any thoughts India and so- Indian, Vietnam,
1: India and Vietnam are sort of about to join the club, but they haven 't been at it long enough yet
0: Uh-huh, but they probably will, as you yeah. say
1: no uh, we, we, we' spent a fair amount of time talking about that, as do other people I, I, don't, I think the, answer, the honest answer is in terms of definitive answers we don 't know, uh, but it looks like the demonstration effects are more powerful you know, in kind of regionally, which means there's probably a cultural component to it. Uh, The reason it's hard to reach a definitive conclusion is is because there are other factors. You know, I mean, let me just state it starkly. One of the disadvantages most of the African countries have is that they're new. And, you know, and they have a complex sort of tribal structure, and they haven't had a lot of years in building what you would call national identity. You know, meaning, and by that I mean nothing more complicated than, you know, what group do the citizens think they belong to? You know, because, I mean, the underlying question is when push comes to shove and things are going badly, you know, do we all think we're in this together? And uh, so so these countries are still, in a sense, building that identity that, you know, that we've been at for a couple hundred years or more in the United States that, you know, China, in some sense, even though it wasn't developing economically, it's been at for two thousand years. So there's kind of deeper questions, yeah, you know, a, good point. Yeah, about the the politics and the cohesiveness and the sense of identity that underpin some of this, uh, that then then turn out to to be constraints on on sort of collective choice and policy decision making and and investing
0: and so on. That's a very good point. What do you think are the most exciting areas in research on this topic of growth that that are people are exploring right now that have the most promise for understanding what's going on?
1: Well, I certainly think the work in political economy uh, meaning the the interacting incentives created by the the dynamics in the economy and the and 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 the uh, effect of the political and policy system on that and vice versa. It's A, important, and B, very promising. Not done yet. I mean, in the sense that you'd want to say we've largely finished that agenda, but I, I think that work is extremely important. Uh, now, you know, once you put the political system in the, in the model, so to speak, and make it endogenous, then, then you're kind of... It, you see, most of us, when we think about economic policy you know, think, well, the government sort of policies are exogenous, and then the economy reacts, so the models are about the economy, right? You know, the political economy agenda is to make the politics part of the model. <laughs> seems like... ...for the policies. It,
0: seems like a good I idea. Wonder,
1: <laughs> it, yeah, no, it's a wonderful idea, but then if you're talking to policymakers, they say, well, you know, it's sort of like you're telling me that you've got a model that will predict what I'm going to do tomorrow, and... Uh, so you start wondering about well, so where are the levers? Yeah. Where What's exogenous to this? Yeah. And we had some fun with that. Um, you know, I think there are answers to that, and and the answers will turn out to be interesting because the political economy agenda is real. There are constraints on politicians, and then I think the creative part in a developing country context is is um, has to do with sequencing things so that you can actually get them done without too much political resistance.
0: Yeah, I think of that as the recipe problem, that you might know the ingredients, and this is the problem I have with the Washington yeah. Consensus and any other attempts to sort of summarize what's going on. We, we yeah. have the ingredients. We don't know when to add what to what, or better yet, we don't really understand the process by which the dish gets cooked. So knowing the, the recipe but not the... Um, the sequencing isn't all that helpful.
1: You mean ignoring the ingredients, yeah. No, we actually, because of Bob Solo, used exactly those words. We said these are ingredients, probably the ones we've identified we think are, are absolutely critical if you want the thing to taste good. But, but the recipes are all terribly country-specific.
0: Yeah, some things have to come except first. For the,
1: except for the common ingredients,
0: Yeah, right? some things I have mean, to come first nobody, in some places.
1: Yeah. Sorry, I didn't interrupt you, but nobody thinks that a country where the, the literacy rate is 40% is going to be able to grow at yeah. this rate. I mean, there's certain things that everybody agrees on. Uh, and And nobody thinks that a country where you have to take a horse and buggy to get, you know, inland to the farming area is going to grow at at high rates, so it's not as if there's no knowledge but but the process of how you get there and with very limited human and financial and other resources, you know what things you do in what order uh I think it's not something for which there's a formula and, and if there is, we don't know what it is
0: uh let's talk for a minute about the practical aspects of the commission uh it's issued. Uh, Two major reports. We're in the process of talking about one. I'll turn to the second one in a minute. But we're talking about the first one, which are these requirements for growth, success, some failure, some of the challenges. Um, What are the prospects that – it's an awkward question, but what are the prospects that that people are going to listen to this? Um, And does the nature of the commissioners being non-academic, for the most part, uh, help or hinder it?
1: I think it helps. I mean, in part because you know they—they're not anti-academic. Uh, that is, the commissioners are highly educated people that came to workshops, interacted effectively with the you know the best of the academic world, and I think uh, they probably started with a high level of mutual respect and ended up with an even higher one. So I think on that score, um, you know, the the commissioners and the kinds of people they represent are respectful of, the, of good academic and policy-oriented research, and conversely, I think the academics benefit, the best of the academics benefit um, from, from that interaction. I also think that because of who the commissioners are, um, <coughs> that I find that the report seems to have a kind of a life of its own, Uh, at least in the developing world. And the fact that it's about the developing world means that it's probably, you know, from the point of view of kind of public attention gets less attention in the advanced countries because a subset of people are interested in the rest. You know, that's kind of a different world out there. I mean, most of us have never lived in a country that was either very poor or growing at 10% a year. Right. It's kind of out of the range of our experience.
0: Right. Um, let's turn to Haiti. The most,
1: the, most, the most popular part of that report was, was, was um, uh, the idea of one of the commissioners, and it's called Bad Ideas, yeah. <laughs> and there's about 20 or 25 of them that was just meant to be kind of fun, you know, because uh, <clears throat> this one member of the commission said, you know, you really got to say something, you know, sort of, kind of provocative, and... It, this turned out to be kind of a smash hit. I started to get emails and letters, and things showed up in newspapers around the world You know, that sounded roughly like, you know, I looked at this list of bad ideas, and our government was doing 18 of the 25 <laughs> or something like that. It was quite fun, and I think it was actually, the benefit of hindsight, kind of a good idea to put it in the negative.
0: Yeah, well, you know? that's the anti-demonstration effect. It's very important.
1: Yeah, it's the anti-demonstration effect.
0: A little humiliation. Um, i want to turn yeah. to let's turn to haiti and um we mm-hmm. we don't know how horrific it's going to be uh but but what's what's we're what we're seeing right now is a is a statement about infrastructure that that there's nothing there i don't mean in the buildings i mean in the in the in the government in the the normal channels that you would go through in a, de- in a developed country. Now, part of that is due to the fact that so much has been destroyed, but, but a lot of it's due to the fact that it was not a very good system. And I think some people are talking about this as an opportunity to really alter the structure of Haitian government, society, et cetera. What do you, what do you think of those claims? And what can we do to help well- them, if anything?
1: Well, I think that the answer to that is that, that... Let me just make an observation that relates to what we were talking about before, and I'll answer your question directly. It's very difficult to change things, even when they're not going well. But when they're going horrendously badly and you actually have a crisis, you frequently find that's the point in which there's a change. And the reason is, we suspect, that in a crisis, the constraints that normally operate get removed because of the of the of the negative situation and there's lots of examples of that. Um, now a crisis doesn't always produce good results, but it's but it often does produce an opportunity. So I mean I think the opportunity people are talking about here is is to make a massive effort to deal with the with, the, with an obvious crisis in humanitarian and every other term, and but then keep going. You know, and and help Haiti get to a different level um, in terms of the resources that are available to them, and in in all of the dimensions you ma- mentioned, and hope that that momentum, you know, allows the people in Haiti to pick the ball up with uh, fewer constraints and a brighter looking future. Um, now, that's a tall order. I mean, I wouldn't want to bet that's going to happen, but I think you know, we have the resources because it's a relatively small country uh, and a close neighbor of ours in North America uh, and lots of, you know, relationships. I mean, even personal ties? The Governor General of Canada is um, Haitian uh, in origin and so on. So uh, I think there's a, a real reason to make, you know, a supremely large effort not to, not just they help them get back on their feet, but they help them get to a different level as a starting point, and then, at some point, you know, as is true in every case, they're going to have to take it over and and uh, make the choices for themselves.
0: seems to me the best thing we could do for them though would be to let let the Haitians move to the United States uh, if we had a different welfare system, I think that would be an imaginable humanitarian. Solution right now it seems difficult to understand how, even to deliver the aid there. It's an incredible challenge.
1: Oh, it's an enormous challenge. You know the, the the problem. You're absolutely right. And on a much broader scale, we looked at demographics. You know, people have made the argument that you could sort of increase global GDP. Uh, by, you know, ten percent practically overnight just by lightening up on by overnight means, you know, over a decade long period, um just by kind of lightening up on immigration. But of course that that I mean that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um but it's also, you know, immigration is a, a tough, tough subject.
0: Well part of uh, part well, of it we, I think it's natural yeah. that some people are would be opposed to that on uh, personal grounds. Others, I think, are opposed to it out of ignorance um, because they assume it would have to hurt us. Many people, of course, would be, who are already here in the United States, would be helped by having uh, absolutely more folks here.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and there's good studies of that. I mean, um, the trick is to, um, this is a really important sort of subject, you know, from an international point of view, because there's a Quite apart from situations like Haiti, and I don't mean to divert us off, but there's a, there's a, where people, where young people are coming into job markets and where the jobs are simply don't match, at least in the short and medium run. And there's just a massive youth unemployment problem, which with a little imagination, you know, we should think of it as a kind of security problem on a global basis if it isn't dealt with. And, you know, there's lots of countries where, even the highest possible growth rates you can imagine, you know, based on historical evidence, wouldn't really have the absorptive capacity with respect to these people. So we need, we probably need, you know, well supervised ways that people can move to jobs uh, that are more effective than the ones we have now. I mean, in a country like ours, you know, people move to jobs and jobs move. To People. All the time. Uh, yeah. it's, in the global economy, you know, jobs move to people, and that's partly why it works pretty well from the point of view of the developing countries. But people are much more constrained in moving to jobs.
0: Yeah, I meant to ask you this earlier when you talked about not letting the pace of creative destruction get too far ahead of, of the labor market. It seems to me we don't, as economists, have a very good understanding of the labor market. I mean, we have a sort of very, very crude understanding where we say things like, well, if you make it more expensive to hire people and fire people, there'll be less dynamic aspects to the labor market. Europe is less dynamic than the United States. But it seems to me there's something a lot more fundamental going on about how people feel about, I don't know, risk and and things we don't understand as economists or haven't even thought about. And one of the incredible advantages we have in the United States, even in this miserable economy we're in right now with with 10% unemployment, is it, it's still a relatively uh, dynamic place to, to be. And it's easier okay. for employers to create jobs. And in these poor countries, you know, creative destruction doesn't work the same way it works here. And there's a reason for that, and I don't think we understand it very well. I don't know whether it's cultural, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's the legal environment, but it's a different, it's a different thing
1: different you know and you're right we don't understand it very well and when uh, when we and i in particular went to look at it and listen to experts it's incredibly complicated but but the, but the barriers to incremental productive employment creation are partly man made for sure that and they and they and it relates to the political economy discussion we are having if you have a as is common in many of these countries, you have a formal labor market and then a huge informal labor market that's somewhat less skilled, somewhat less educated. Um, Very frequently you have, you know, almost a dual economy situation. And if you try to fix that by reforming the labor market, which will come out sounding to the incumbents in the formal sector like inviting a few million competitors in for their jobs, yeah. they won't react very well. Yeah. And, and if, they have, if they have the political clout, you know, and this varies from country to country, but it's not uncommon, to prevent that from happening, they will. And so you end up with this, uh, uh, a set of what amounts of barriers uh, to the people who are not in the modern economy and in the highly productive part uh, entering it.
0: We're, we're low on time. I, I wanted to ask you about that second report, but instead we're going to put a link up to that for people who are interested, and it deals with the financial crisis and the global economic crisis and its implications for uh, developing countries. I, I want instead to instead ask yep. you, and we'll put a link up to the other report as well, but instead I want to ask you about something totally different, which um, you have a right. un, unique perspective on, which is which is Michael Spence. Um You've had you have had a very unusual uh, career. You started off as a very standard academic economist. You did extremely innovative, academic-oriented, sophisticated, mathematically uh, highest-level stuff. Then you went and you became the dean of a of a world-class business school. And you did that yeah, for... Well,
1: actually, I, I became the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard first. Okay, way, so
0: you made in that... am was
1: President box fault. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm going yeah,
0: right. to leave out some... You, you can help me fill in the blanks here, but th- these are the ones I know about. Yeah. So you were a, a, a fairly narrow, pardon the insult, uh, academic economist. Then you were an, an academic administrator, uh, the Dean of Arts and Sciences, then you then you changed yeah. gears and became the dean of a business school, which is a people don't I think realize what an extraordinarily weird job that is. You, you've got a large faculty, all of whom are see themselves roughly self employed, but you're also raising right. enormous amounts of money. You've, you're a public figure, so you did that. Then you win the Nobel Prize, which was real pleasant, I'm sure. And then you become what? Say that again. I
1: said it was wonderful. Yeah. Um, complete
0: surprise. Yeah. Congrats. And then, then you chair this International Commission of a very different kind than, than most academics chair because you've got all these practitioners and politicians. So I, I'm sure it's been a fascinating ride. But what I, the question I want to ask you about that very diverse resume is talk about what you learned. I think you probably are wiser than you were when you were 25. Um, you certainly, I assume, think you're wiser. I'd be, and I, you probably really are. I'd be curious to know how you feel those different experiences shaped your understanding of the world and which were more valuable and what lessons you learned that you had to relearn or reject other things you thought you knew. Talk about that.
1: Well, I, I guess you know, I mean, I, I, I view myself as lucky in a way, I mean, to have these opportunities. But when I look back on it, you know, when I became a, um, a, a dean at Harvard and then at Stanford, I was basically in a job that involved a certain amount of leadership and management and, um, and a lot of interaction with people who, you know, on the fundraising and alumni relations and related side you know, with whom I found I enjoyed um, getting to know them, getting to know what they did. Um, I ended up on the boards of companies, which is a wonderful way to kind of have an inside view of what management think, thinks it's doing, what its challenges are. And, I, I, and when I sort of add that all up, and then I, the Growth Commission was a... a an experience of a similar type, only these are, you know, people that I hadn't really had a chance to spend a lot of time with who are leaders in that kind of political and policy area, and that I hadn't spent time um, on in, in the United States doing that. But I came to appreciate, I mean, I, I came to appreciate not only the people, but I came to appreciate how many different kinds of skills and capabilities and imaginations and intellects it takes, you know, to run a, a, a successful society and a, and a successful economy. You know, because I actually spent enough time with these people to either trying to, in, in a very small way, do what they did or at least interacting with them. And so I view it as a very rich experience. And now I sort of feel, when I sit back and think, or say to myself or to you, you know, there's an enormously complex set of of things that go into making a a productive, innovative, rewarding, opportunity-full society. I I, I feel like I have somehow acquired a real sense of what that means concretely over over these 30, 40 years.
0: So how can the rest of us understand that without following your career path, which is a difficult, uh, difficult strategy.
1: Well, I think everybody in a way, you know, has brushes with this. I mean, nobody ever has the complete picture. That's one of the amazing things about our society is that it manages to run, you know, in a certain circumstances where nobody, you know, it's just physically and intellectually impossible to kind of grasp the whole thing. But, um, but I think people people's experiences actually give them a sense of this. Uh, you know, most people have involvements in either the institution that they're in or the communities uh, that give them a chance to do something quite different from what they do at work uh, and so on. I, I You know, I, my impression is that uh, I mean it would be hard to kind of it'd be, i don't it 's not hard i mean it 's just choices but uh, to kind of reproduce any particular exact resume um, but i what I find is that young people are very creative and they kind of have the advantage i certainly think I did of narrowness of focus. I was really fixated on you know what, what the informational structure of markets and how that worked and and, but then, as you get older, Russ, you, I mean, I think we all sort of have. You interview many people and learn a lot from a, a very wide range of people. We have contact with them. We have. We tend to acquire administrative or, or community or managerial responsibilities. Almost all of us, or a great many of us, and we acquire over time. Uh, it's not just the direct experience, but it's. Uh, Maybe we give up the innovative edge and focus and narrowness and acquire a kind of broader view um, and a sense a sense of how important people and their values are in making things happen. I think that's that's one of the most important things I learned. Uh, no, it a... wasn't just that the people knew how to do various things, but they, their leadership came from their values, their integrity, their what they really cared about and communicated to other
0: people. Yeah, when you see that it's so it's so uh obvious how important it is, right? It just it jumps out yeah, at it you. Is. It overwhelms you, it, it inspires play. it. But, well, I like your point about focus because you know, it reminds me of what people say about entrepreneurs. I think Adam Smith said it, but it's obvious if you've ever dealt with entrepreneurs as I did a little bit in my business school experiences and you must have as a lot at Stanford, which is now they have a, a grotesquely inaccurate assessment of their probability of success, which is a good thing right. usually because <laughs> if they knew the real chances, they, they'd give up. And that narrowness of focus, the way I think of it sometimes, you know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, particularly in academic life, uh, you think you know everything often, which is – it's a big handicap, but it's a, there's an advantage to it because you, you, you focus in on, on writing that paper or studying that subject. And as you get older, and in my case, a lot of it comes from doing this this program and talking to a lot of really smart people, smarter than I am. Uh, you learn how little you know, and that's a rich and, and wonderful thing too. Uh, it's probably for the best. Yeah, it is. Probably for the best. It doesn't happen when you're 25. It's a good. It's not a bad system.
1: <laughs> I gave like gave uh, uh, when my youngest daughter graduated from high school, I went because. I had been on the board, but I went and gave the graduation address. And so that was the hardest thing I ever did. I thought, what am I going to say to these 18-year-olds?
0: Sure.
1: And uh, it, what I ended up saying to them was, you know, I mean, I think you you need to understand, you, and you probably already do, that you are entering the period where you're very powerful, but you're at your most creative. You are free of most of the constraints that come with conventional wisdom and a lot of experience piled up on top of it, and you should just take advantage of that. And, you know, later on, you'll be wiser. There's no question about it. you probably more balanced than other things. So there is a natural cycle in these things, and you want to understand where you are in that and kind of throw yourself into it. And I think that's true. I mean, people in their... Late 40s and 50s have a pile of experience that they can rely on that's not there. And that's both an asset and a constraint.
0: For sure. Uh, you mentioned before we started this uh, interview that the commission that, that you're chairing is not meant to last uh, forever. Uh, it was started in 2006. It's probably going to end, quote, soon, whatever that means, but soonish. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to close until... and tell. You want to close and tell us uh, what you might be doing next?
1: Well, I'm going to stay involved with, um, with you know, it, things related to the global economy and the developing world, for sure. I think it'll be a combination of writing and research and teaching, I think. And um, and then, hopefully, I will have a chance to stay involved with, you know, the kinds of people I worked on in the commission, uh, at the country level and so on. I'm doing a little bit of that now. I try to get to to India and China frequently. I'd like to spend more time in Latin America. Um, I now have, you know, friends uh, and, and people that I can work with there. Um, I think that the, the agenda is probably bigger than the time available. I'd love to get back to Indonesia. I think it's a fascinating and important country. The member of the commission who was, uh, from Indonesia, Dr. Boniono uh, at the time was the coordinating economic minister. He then went to be the head of the central bank and he is now the vice president of the country. So, and that was fairly common. People were switching jobs. Uh, um, but so I think that mix of things. I also, but I have tried to stay involved with the private sector on the, with private companies and uh, boards of public companies and some relationships in the investment world just to, because I find that um, focusing on the issues as they appear at that level, you know, either in business or, at, or in an investing entity, um, kind of brings you down to earth, uh, or it's a nice compliment to the way the world looks from twenty-five or thirty thousand feet.
0: <laughs> My guest today has been Michael Spence. Mike, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: On.